Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information, go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. have a special treat for you guys today, special guest speaker, uh, pastor, mentor, friend of mine, uh, Michael Fletcher. How many of you were in the army and you were ever at Fort Bragg and went to Manor Church while you were there? Raise your hand. There you go. Got hit. Well, get, that's the most hands we've had all day. And, and uh, so this is your former pastor. You guys know him. The rest of you may say, well, I don't know who he is. Let me tell you a little bit about him. If you've ever been to First Step, we explain to you that we have an oversight team. That means I have some people who speak into my life. They're, they're more seasoned pastors. They've been doing this longer. They have more experience. They have more wisdom. And uh, there's one person more than anybody who has influenced me, uh, helped me become the pastor that I am, has more influence over who we are as a church and the decisions I've made, and, and that is Michael Fletcher right here. So even though you maybe have never met him or seen him face-to-face, he's had more influence in your life through me than any other leader. So that's, that's pretty Cool. Except for all the mistakes I made, those were Kent's ideas. But all the good things I did, those were Michael's ideas. Michael is also a leader just all across the world. He's one of the the coaches and leaders with Leadership Network. Um, He's written several books on building churches. And by that, I don't mean building buildings. Although he's got a lot of experience with that, I mean building churches, people, and and what he does there. He's uh, the Mana Church has over five campuses just in the immediate region of Cape Fear area there and plant the churches all across the world. That's, that's just been one of his life passions. Um, and uh, currently 8,000 plus members. And uh, he's also one of the two main mentors for a, a leadership network project in Europe of the 50 largest, most influential, fastest growing churches in Europe. They have him come in and do that. So it's Truly our privilege to have Michael here with us today. Will you join me and welcome Michael to the stage? Thanks, Jimmy. You left out the most important part. I have eight children. Let that sink in. You're waiting for that to be a joke. That's not a joke. That's real. And 20 grandchildren. (laughs) 20 and a half. We got one in the oven. Um, On the way. I've been a pastor. I've been married for 38 years. To my high school sweetheart, I met her when I, kids don't do this, I skipped school and I went from my school to her school, I was 16, she was 14 when we met and um, we've been together ever since except for one three month period of mental illness where she broke up with me. Um, <laughs> she came to her senses and um, at Easter, there's a resurrection, it really did happen at Easter, she came to her senses and said this is the man over the boy that I want to be with and so we were uh, married and had eight kids, 20 and a half grandkids, and I preached my first sermon 41 years ago. Um, so I was a young pastor when I took over at Manor Church, which is a church da- Jerry Daly started, just like this one was started by Jerry Daly. I was a young guy, and uh, I was 26 years old. I heard about a young guy recently, a young pastor, really smart guy, great preacher. Um, he took his first church out in the country someplace, and uh, been there about three months, and then one of the key parishioners died. And he didn't know that parishioner very well, so he, um, he thought, well, I can't really bring a lot to the funeral by way of personal anecdote. I don't know the guy, really, so what I'll do is I'll pre- preach the best message they've ever heard. So he worked all afternoon on the message leading up to the funeral, 
and the funeral's out in the country as well. So he waited to the last moment to leave to get there just in time, working on the final touches of that message, and he got in his car and drove away. The problem is he got lost out in the country. So he didn't show up to the funeral until it was an hour late. We got there. The hearse was gone. The family was gone. All the members were gone. He, all he could see was a hole that was mostly filled in and two, two workers sitting beside their two shovels eating sandwiches while they were just taking a break. And so he thought to himself, well, I missed the funeral, but at least I can preach this guy into eternity with power and honor and glory. So he walks up to the edge of the hole, half filled in. He bows his head and starts to pray. Well, these two workers jump up and kind of wipe off the food from their mouth and get themselves as good as they can. And they just bow there and, and they, they, they bow when he prays. And then he starts to preach. And he preached about 30 minutes of just raw passion. He prayed a prayer at the end. He walked away and got in his car. And when he did, one of the workers looked at the other one and said, I've been putting in septic tanks for over 20 years, and I've never seen the likes of that. <laughs> By May 1940, the European nations of Holland and Belgium and France had fallen to the aggressive advance of Hitler's Nazi army. And by the time they finished crossing France, there were 330,000 troops trapped on the beach between the little city of Dunkirk and the English Channel. Basically, the entire British army. Hitler's army was making the aggressive advance, advance to destroy that army and put an end to the war in Europe. British Vice Admiral Ramsey initiated a project he called Operation Dynamo. The idea was to take the warships of the British Navy, to take them across the English Channel, and to rescue the boys from the beach, thus preserving Europe and England from total destruction. The first day of their effort of Operation Dynamo, May 26, the German, the German planes strafed the sea. Only a few thousand were taken off the beach, and it was calculated on that day that it would take 40 days to save 330,000 troops. At the, end of it, at the end of 40 days, of course, they'd all be gone. All would be lost, then the world would be under German domination. So President, not President, excuse me, Prime Minister Winston Churchill did what he does best, and he called the nation. He called the nation to prayer, and they prayed. They did but he also called the nation to rise up. He called for everyone that owned a ship of, or a sailing vessel of any type to take to the seas, to go across that treacherous stretch of water known as the English Channel, to go to the beach at Dunkirk and to save the boys, to bring the boys home, and to preserve British and European freedom. A flotilla of salvation responded. God did answer prayer. He caused the clouds to come that inhibited the, the German air assault. And by June 4th, all 330,000 boys were taken off that beach and were safely home in England. God helped them. But the nation and, the civil, civil, and the, the nation and civilization as we know it was saved by the power of they. I want to read to you a passage of Scripture out of Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to read it awkwardly to illustrate what I mean by the power of they. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us bake bricks 
and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole face of the earth. But the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower which the men were building. And the Lord said, if this as one people, speaking the same language, if this is what they have begun to do, then nothing they do, nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over the whole earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them all over the face of the earth. Now you've been around. You've been to cities with tall buildings. Maybe you've been to New York City. Maybe you haven't, but you've seen pictures of the Empire State Building, that huge, giant, mammoth structure, so well-known to everybody. Maybe you've looked at the different buildings built around the world. Maybe you've been to Dubai, to United Arab Emirates, where there's that building there. Maybe you've seen pictures of it. It's literally one half mile tall. And with all these buildings and structures that have been built since these days, I don't see God coming down to stop them. I mean, the idea here was that these people would build a tower tall enough that they would climb, they would dispossess God of His throne, they would rule the world themselves, and God wouldn't be their God. They could run the world and do what they wanted to do themselves. And so you look at that and you wonder, you think, well, why did, make, why did that make God feel insecure? Why did that make God feel like He needs to come down? You need to understand, in the Bible, God comes down three times in Scripture. The first coming... Christmas, pretty important, right? The second coming, pretty important, and right here. What has God's attention to cause him to do here what he's only going to do three times in human history? Why is this one of those? What is it about that tower? It's not the tower. If you think it's the tower, then you really miss the point. Let me go back to verse 5. But the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower the men were building, to see it. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Speaking the same language. That means they have the same culture. Language creates culture. They had the same language. They had the same plan. They had the same goal. They had the same, the same mindset. And all the people were together. They were in unity on this. They had the power of they. God said, Nothing they plan will be impossible. If that's true of evil, if people have the power of they and they can cause evil to come to place, come to pass like this, then how much more true is it of good and of following God and obeying his word and being and godliness? The church in the city of Corinth, the one Paul planted, was the most spiritual church of all the churches that he planted. He actually writes to them and says that they have all the spiritual gifts in operation. No other church has that accolade given to it. Not any church Paul planted or not any church anybody else planted in the New Testament. There is no place where it's recorded that a church other than this church has all the spiritual gifts in operation. And Paul says they have great knowledge. They're, they're wise, they're noble, they have great knowledge, they have all the spiritual gifts. Paul spent a year and a half there training them, discipling them, building this local church. He didn't do that in other places. He spent two years in Ephesus, but almost all the other places. He didn't spend a year and a half. Not in Galatia, not in Philippi, not in Thessalonica. 
Got a year and a half. And yet, there's more correction in this letter to the Corinthians. Paul writes them three times. Two of them we have in the New Testament. And there's more correction in 1 Corinthians alone than any other book in the Bible. As a matter of fact, if you'll take all the epistles and lay them out in front of you and add up all the different verses of correction to all the other churches in the New Testament, those verses are fewer than the correction that Paul brings to this one church in 1 Corinthians alone. They were a mess. On top of that, they lacked the power that is characteristic of the early church. They, they just didn't have the power. In fact, despite the fact that they had all the spiritual gifts, despite the fact that they had knowledge, despite the fact that they had wisdom, despite the fact that there were many noble among them, Paul actually characterizes them as being carnal, as being fleshly, and despite their great knowledge, he categorizes them as babes. Why? Because they had no they. They had no they. How do you know that, Michael? Well, let's just look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He's just gotten started. He said, hello, everybody. I love you. God loves you. You got all the spiritual gifts. You're really smart. You got lots of nobles. You got lots of knowledge. Verse 10, I appeal to you. Brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You almost exasperate. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another so that you may have no divisions among you, so that you may be perfectly united in mind and heart. He's saying, hey, you lost your they. You need to get your they back. My brother's son from Chloe's household. Who's Chloe? Chloe's a lady who runs a house church. My brother, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? A little sarcasm here. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And then what follows after this is page after page, chapter after chapter, verse after verse. This is broken. That is broken. This is broken. This is shameful and embarrassing why how could they stoop to such lows after so much attention they had no they contrast this with the testimony given to us by luke in the book of acts in acts chapter 2 of the church the early church in jerusalem just a couple of years after the ascension of jesus just a couple jesus died buried rose from the dead a couple of years we read this in acts chapter 2 now Here's an interesting thing about Acts chapter 2. Luke is writing, and he's giving us a look into how the church, early church operated under the leadership of these 12 guys. Now, remember who these 12 guys were. These guys were, the, these guys were always dropping the ball. Am I right? I mean, Peter, foot in his mouth. Not just his foot. Peter, had his, Peter would put his foot in his mouth up to his hip. I mean, these are the guys that just a couple of years before this, they, 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 didn't, they didn't have all the spiritual gifts. They, they didn't have all the knowledge. They, they didn't grow up being taught in Greek school. They, they, they didn't have all the understanding of, of, of wisdom and the things that they had in Corinth. These are the guys that when Jesus went to the Last Supper, he's no longer telling them in, in, in cloaked words. He's now telling them plainly, I am going 
to die. They are going to kill me. They're going to crucify me. They're going to nail me to a cross. And in the midst of that conversation, somehow the brothers find a way to have a little conversation about, I'm greater than you. No, I'm greater than you. No, I'm greater than you. No, I'm greater than you. They, have, they, they find a way to have that little And Jesus said, what are you all talking about? Are you all talking about who's the greatest? You two brothers. And, and then, then the, the mother of the two brothers, she shows up and says, could my one son sit on your right hand and my other son sit on your other hand? And Jesus said, what do you not get? They're going to crucify me and y'all going to scatter because you're next. And then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops like blood. Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off this guy's ear. These guys are a mess. If you had to choose just qualification-wise between the people in Corinth and these guys, you'd choose the people in Corinth. They, they, they've been to school. They've got all the... They just have any day. They don't have any day. Let me read this awkwardly again. I'm just going to read it, and you just kind of follow. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread into prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. No wonder there were miracles and signs and wonders in this early church. No wonder they were commonplace in Jerusalem. No wonder the church grew like a weed because it wasn't about intellect. It wasn't about skill. It wasn't about all the gifts. It was about the power of they. And they had tapped into the power of they. The truth is that they is destroyed by the things that produce division. Sometimes we feel like, you know, if I have some broken relationships, it's not really going to impact the whole church. I mean, I can, I can sit on this side and have sit, him sit on that side. We used to be friends, but we had a falling out, and he's an idiot, and he thinks I'm an idiot, but I'm right, and he's wrong, so we'll just agree to disagree, which is really code for I resent him and he resents me. But those are the kinds of things that destroy are they. Infighting and dissension. And I'm not saying you have that here, but it's commonplace, sadly, in the body of Christ infighting and pride it has to be my way i want it my way it's got to be my way or the highway sometimes stubbornness you know um they is created and sustained on the other hand by being of one mind and agreed upon one vision now this church has grown and by the way you're a fast-growing church did you know that you probably don't know that so let me tell you the average Sunday morning attendance in the United States of America is 74 people. 74 people. That's man, woman, and child. They're probably counting cats, dogs, church mice. There used to be a guy sat there. He ain't there now, but he would be if he could be, so we'll count him. I mean, you count everything. You count everything. 90% of all churches in the United States are under 200, 200 people in attendance. There are two key barriers. Two key barriers. There's the 100-200 barrier. That's why 90% are smaller than that. There's a way to break it. I actually wrote a book on it. Then there's a second barrier, the seven and 800 barrier. You guys are at that barrier now. You're just beneath it. Only 1% of all churches break through that barrier. You're going to break through it because we know how. 
and we're going we're gonna to have that conversation. You're going to break through that barrier for two reasons. Number one, because we know how. But when you, and the second one is because you're building a building. Now, the building has nothing to do with breaking the barrier, but it just so happens that you're at the place to break the barrier and the building could actually be a help. Maybe if I have a moment in the sermon later, because Jimmy told me, go ahead and take a full two hours. <laughs> so if I have a moment later, you're going to serve lunch and then we have nap time for the kids and then I'll finish. So they're for those two reasons. But listen, once you break through that seven and 800 barrier, you'll be in the one percentile. Only 1% of all churches in America break through the seven and 800 barrier. Most people don't even talk about it or write about it because so few are there. Most are under 100, 200. This church has grown, and you're a rapid growth church. Jimmy's a great leader, number one, but you've also done a really good job. You ought to give yourselves a hand. All right, stop, 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 stop. No. I love football. I love basketball. I love baseball. I love almost tennis. I love almost all sports. If, if forced to during the Olympics, when they shift to curling, why do they do that? When they shift to curling, I'll sit there in front of the TV and watch curling. My wife says, what are you doing? I'll watch it. But I hate golf. And one reason I hate golf, don't, don't judge me. One reason I hate golf is because they do like this. They do that little go, oh, eh, eh, eh. Little golf clap. Eh, yeah. Oh, good job. Yeah. Here we are. Don't golf clap. You either clap or you don't clap. Decide. You're either in or you're out, but don't stand in the middle. Am I there? Are you with me? All right. So this church has grown, and you're a rapid growth church, by the way. You shouldn't be where you are at this time in your history. This is a very good sign. This is a very good thing. And one of the reasons is you have a very clear vision. You know what you're doing. You know who you are, and you know who you aren't. The truth is, as you move forward, those lines are going to get, or tend to get, a little bit blurred. Here's what Jimmy told me before the first service, and I wrote it down. And he kind of repeated it when he gave the State of the Union of the building. Is that a bad thing? It's the state of affairs, okay? It's what's going on right now with the building. I rode past it, and I, was, I thought, that thing's got a hole in the wall. I mean, come on. That's a hole-in-the-wall building. Anyway, that's funny. You'll get it later at lunch. Here's what Jimmy told me earlier. While the workers build the building, we build the church. You know, it's just as important to know who you aren't as it is to know who you are. And sometimes success and progress works against itself. Sometimes success is your own worst enemy. Here's why. Because you're clear on who you are and where you're going. Just, we, have the same, we have the same three things. In our place, we talk about love God, love each other, love the world. We do three things that correlate, that correlate with those things. Inspiring worship services, love God, love each other, small groups, outreach for love the world. Sometimes people come to us and they say, we do those three things. We only do, the, do those three things. Sometimes people come and they say, I've got a great idea. I went and visited my brother's church, and here's what they do. I went and visited my dad's church in, in, in Kansas, and this is what they do. Or, hey, there's a new church down the street, and this is what they do. I heard, on, I watched online that some famous guy is doing this in church, and the pressure is, why don't we become that? You should write this down. It's not in your notes. Oh, wait, you don't pass out notes, do you? You should pass out notes. It's in my notes, it's not in your notes. So you have to write this down. If you don't have anything to write on, then write on your neighbor's shirt. 
Just write in the back of their shirt, and they'll give it to you later. That was a joke. Y'all need to catch up to me. I'm telling you what. Y'all had all morning to get this together. It's the 12 o'clock service. Come on. You had lots of coffee. You've eaten breakfast. The lunch buffet, you'll make it. I'm not going to go two hours, I promise. What happens is, listen, everybody is somebody, but nobody's everybody. Everybody's somebody, but nobody is everybody. And when we get a little bit successful, and you can feel, this is a 12 o'clock service, getting a little full in here too. Y'all should have been here the one before that, and the one before that. Y'all need that building. And when you get in there, there's going to be a little bit of space. And then pretty soon you start thinking, I think we've made it. I think we're finally here. We got better equipment. We got better carpet. We got better stuff. We got, we got better lights. We got better sound. We can drive in and out. Hey, we got a cop out there letting us out in the evening, in the afternoon. Praise God. And we can all meet together or we can be in two services, whatever. We, we can stay in this building forever. We've arrived. There's a little more money. Let's do this and let's do that and let's do this and let's do that. And pretty soon we try to be everybody instead of the somebody that God called us to be. And then we get stuck. We don't go where we are really called to go. So you know what's going to have to happen? Let me just tell you a little bit of church 401. If you're in Bible college, we have a Bible college. If you're in Bible college, now we're teaching on um, ecclesiology, which is theology for church, the, the theology of church. If I were teaching on that, I'd be talking about 401. Here's 401. If you're going to move, and this is why the building's going to help you. It, it, the building's going to require some change. That's why it's going to help. Some systems have to change simply because this structure is not the same as that one. So where, who, when, how, those policies, things are going to have to be made. So, but infrastructure, a church will reduce to the size of its infrastructure. That's why they call it the new building bump, which you're not going to have. But a lot of churches get into a new building and they bump, they go up, and they come back down just a little bit above what they were before they got in the building. And then they begin to wonder, what was this all about? Why do we spend that money? Why do we work so hard? And why do we do all that just to be a few people more to have a nicer seat in a nicer location? The problem is they didn't build their infrastructure for the future, so they reduced to the infrastructure they had before they got in the building. Did you understand that? Infrastructure is two things, systems and people. Listen, we can build systems in a weekend. We can get together with the leaders and sit down and make brand new systems and implement them the following week and write policies to go with it and all of that. That's the easy part. Systems are easy. Systems grow in a microwave. But the other side of infrastructure is the human infrastructure. People. People grow in a crock pot. Slowly. We get better the longer we stay in there. Growing in our character and our competency. So here's the thing. If we don't want to do this, if we don't want to do it, you're perfectly positioned to break the 700, 800 barrier. Because your church is about 650 attendants right now. So you break through, and this building's going to help, because you're going to bump. We have to change the infrastructure, and that means you. That means if we walk into that building with the same number of leaders, we walk in that building with the same children's ministry, we walk in that building with the same prayer team, the same worship team, the same outreach team, the same dream team, the same this, the same that, our human infrastructure has not changed. Some people say, one person said, every church is the perfect size for the infrastructure it presently has. We don't want to stay there. So that means some of us need to think about stepping up our game. May I be so bold? All of us need to step up our game. Every time our churches come to a new threshold, 
I look in the mirror and I say, the Michael Fletcher that got us here is not the Michael Fletcher that can take us forward. I got to grow. I got to change. Truth is, every single person in this room has a calling from God. Do you all believe that? It's not me. It, it's not. In fact, in fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he's writing to believers. He says, I want you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He's not writing to pastors. I once did a sermon, and it was this terrible thing I did. Because some of the pastors in the front row, it's like the third time they heard the sermon. We had multiple services, and so they weren't really paying attention. So I, in the middle of the sermon, I said, so would, every, would every minister please stand? About five pastors stood. And I'm, I was a youth pastor for a bunch of years before I became the senior pastor. And basically, I'm still the youth pastor in mind. They just pay me more, and I have more responsibility. So the youth pastor in me came out when they stood up. And I said, oh, look at you guys standing up over here. Then they realized what they had done. I asked the ministers to stand up. I'm not talking about them. They're pastors. They're equippers. They're coaches. You're the ministers. You're, you're the people of God. You're the church. Can I get a little something there? Y'all like, oh, like, yes. Yeah, so, not a clap. I'm asking for a clap. You can clap if you want to, but if you're just going, oh, then let me know. Or if you go, I don't agree with that, then... Not my fault. I need one of those. Walk around, people come up and say, I got something to say to you. Is it good? Yeah, go on. Is it bad? Right there. Tell him, he did it. See, the truth is we all have a calling. We all have a purpose. We're made on purpose for a purpose. And the thing is, to get into my purpose, I can't stay where I am, right? So I'm in my comfort zone, you're in your comfort zone. We like it in our comfort zone. You don't grow in your comfort zone. You only grow and walk into your purpose when you, when, you, when you take a step toward what God's called you to. you got to step. And in order to step, you got to step outside your comfort zone. You know, in the Bible, the Christian walk is called a walk. It's also called a race. It's never called a stand. So we get to a place where we're here, and we're comfortable, and everything looks good, and we realize, wait a minute, we're moving up. And that, it's an opportunity. Every time the church moves up as a whole, it's an opportunity for you to move up. And experience more of what God has for you. Well, Michael, I think God's already done all that he's going to do in my life. I think I'm where I need to be. Mm, goodbye. That means you're done. Your purpose is accomplished. You're going home. Tell Jesus I said hi. Because if you're still here, it means God's got more. And he's going to do more in you. So some people need to say, maybe it's time for, instead of me just being led, I should step up and be a leader. You say, I'm not, no, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Here, write this down. If you're ever ready for what God called you to, you're late. You're never ready. Nobody's ready. If I look back at all the stuff we did and think, are you ready for this? No. Are you ready for this? No. You ready for this? No. I wasn't ready for anything. Look, you thought you were single. You knew all about marriage. Am I right? <laughs> then you got married and found out there's some things I didn't know. Then you were, then you were a young married couple with no kids. You knew all about kids. <laughs> Judged everyone that had them. Then you went and had some. I'm not ready for this. Did you know that kid gets, gets, he wakes up to feed at three in the morning? So welcome to Parenthood Home Slice. You didn't know that? Every parent's been through that. You just weren't ready. You thought you were, but you weren't ready. You're never ready. That's not the question. It's are you willing? Maybe, maybe step up to be a leader. Maybe it's, maybe it's to join a small group. Maybe it's to lead one. You've been in one. Let's do it. Let's give it a shot. Let's give it a, what if we fail? Well, then we'll grow from it. We'll fail forward. We'll learn something. Listen to me. It's just as important to know who you aren't as to know who you are. So sometimes we've got to blow it to learn that ain't us. 
Maybe, maybe it's being on the dream team. Listen, here's what the Bible says in Proverbs 14, Proverbs 4, verse 25. Let your eyes look directly forward. Let your gaze be straight before you. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Let's do what we, let's be the best we we can be. Let's make it hard. Let's grow. Why? Just so we have a bigger church? No. So we can make it harder to go to hell from Columbia. I'm serious. We want to make it hard to go to hell from here. We want people to have to try to go to hell. Why? Because we're everywhere. We're sharing the gospel. We're living like Jesus wants us to. We're being salt and light. We're everywhere. People keep running into us. We keep inviting them to stuff. Finally, they go, I don't want to go to heaven. Let it be that's how they go to hell, not just because we didn't get to them. So we need to be a little bit bigger army if we're going to reach that whole big city. Dang, that's a big city. Look, let your eyes look directly forward. Let your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. What's God saying to you? What's your upgrade look like? Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure because you'll know you're walking in God's will for your life. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. See, the key here is personalization. We all got to own this. It isn't Jimmy get it, elders get it, somebody else get it. He's joking when he said, you know, clap for the person next to you. Forget the person there. It's you. There's only one person in this room and I'm talking to you. It says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each of us has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You've got something to give. You've got gifts that God put in your life. You've got experiences. Some of, your, some of the days of your life have been hard. Just be honest. There have been times in your life when you're right in the middle of something, you ask God to get you out. You say, God, rescue me, deliver me. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he lets you go around it, right? But oftentimes he calls you to go through it. Am I telling the truth? And when you go through, you learn something going through. You never could have gotten any other way. So while you're in it, you're saying, Lord, deliver me. When you get on the other side of it, you go, oh, man, that was hell. And I never want to go through that again. Then you look back and realize how much you've grown and what God did inside of you and about your faith and how it grew because of that. So the truth is, you've got some wisdom, you've got some knowledge, you've got some experience. You know God in a way that somebody else doesn't but needs to. Somebody's getting ready to walk down that gauntlet, into that trial, not knowing what to do or how to manage themselves, but you've been there before, you can be their guide. You can help them. In fact, God allowed that in your life to cause you to be able to help somebody else. It wasn't about you even then. It was about somebody else. You know, the only two places in the Bible where God says we have the right to determine how his grace is given. We have the right to determine how God's grace is given? Yes, one is with your tongue. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, it says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification, that it may build up the hearer according, it may give grace to the hearer according to the need. In other words, when I speak an encouraging word, if I'm an energy giver, I'm given energy. I'm given communication to you that builds you up and encourages you in in essence god says i'm allowing you to reach into heaven take my grace and through your words impart that to others here's the other place it says each one has received a gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of god i kind of look at your your spiritual gifts your talents your abilities the stuff you've learned like a bowl and in that bowl is grace and if you want to you can just hold that bowl for yourself you never can really drink from your own grace you can only drink from others so it's kind of wasted if you don't give it to somebody else he says as good stewards of the manifold grace of god be a steward of this so if i take the the gifts the talents the abilities 
the suffering, the experiences, the wisdom, the stuff that I've gained over the years, and if I dump that on you, then if I give that to you, then I'm dumping the grace of God out of my bowl upon you. And what does God do for a steward as a good steward? He increases what he has. So if I'll use what I've got, I'll find myself growing in my calling. I'll find myself maturing, being in a place different than I was before. People looking at me and calling upon me and I'll sense that responsibility, but also that great, and the challenge, but also that great opportunity to really make the body of Christ better. We can all do three things. There's a bunch of things, but I'm going to just give you three. We can pray. Everyone can pray. We can give, and I'm not just talking about financially. Give what you have. Give some time. Give some affection, some passion. Give what you have. So we can pray, we can give, and we can serve. And by the way, I'm not giving you three options like check one box. I'm saying let's do all three. Let's all pray, let's all give, and let's all serve. Let's just just up our game. And and the cool thing about it is you don't have to be somebody else. Just be a better you. That's it. God will help you. At Dunkirk, it wasn't one ship. It couldn't be done. It took thousands of vessels, some great but mostly small, some family fishing boats or small motor boats or a weekend sailing vessel. As I said earlier, a flotilla of salvation. I can just imagine in my mind's eye there's a guy who says, honey, pray for me. I'm going. She says, where, where are you going? I'm going to take that boat. Honey, the boys are stuck. That's somebody's son over there. That's somebody's daddy over there. There's a little mama with two little kids hoping daddy comes home. There's somebody's older brother stuck on the beach in Dunkirk. She said, but, but, but honey, you're old, and the boat's not that big, and the English Channel is treacherous, and he says, it holds four people. Yeah, but honey, that's it. It, it only holds four people. And he says, that's me and three others. Honey, that's me and three boys. But what if the German planes? There are three boys over there who need a ride home. And I got a boat, and it's not going to sit. Imagine keeping your boat in dry dock the last dark days of May of 1940. Imagine that. No one could do that. Honey, I can't sit here and put my head in the pillow at night knowing that there are three boys that could sit at the And if this boat doesn't come back, then I tried. But you look for me, babe. I'll be back tomorrow afternoon. You see me, there'll be three boys in this boat. I don't know their names. I don't know their story. I'm going to bring them home. We've got to go beyond the comfortable. There are lots of people out there that need to be rescued. We've got to go beyond the comfortable. We've got to man the oars or start the engine. We've got to take our vessels out to sea. This is not just a church program. It's not just a building program. We're, we're, we're at war. You, you know, I know you know that. For the souls of people and for a generation. What we're trying to build here is something we can pass on to the next generation. It's not something, I'm not trying to be critical, it's not something dead, it's not something religious, it's something life-giving and alive. It's something we can pass on. It's something we're all building together. We have to put our ship in the water, every ship in the water. 
America was not yet at war. Winston Churchill made these comments in a radio speech designed to rally the nation of England and to attract the, the military involvement of the United States. This is a quote from a speech, radio speech made in 1941. Here's the answer that I will give President Roosevelt. We shall not fail or falter. We shall not weaken or tire. Neither the sudden shock of battle nor the long-drawn trials of vigilance and exertion will wear us down. Give us the tools and we will finish the job. And on December 8, 1941, after a vicious attack on Pearl Harbor by Japan the day before, President Roosevelt, with the support of both houses of Congress, declared that the United States of America was in a state of war. And with that declaration, we entered into the power of they. And together, we won the war. The church has undertaken a remarkable but doable task. You will be in the one percentile. You will be one percent. Largest churches in the country. And you're setting pace for the next generation. This vision is going to come become a reality. This cool thing. This vision is going to become a reality right before your eyes. You are on the precipice. You can't smell it. You can literally see it. Look around the room. But to continue to win the war in the face of continual need and continual opportunity, we will need every ship in the water. Let's bow our heads and pray. Did you bow your head? I want, not out loud, but in your heart, I just want you to pray a short prayer. Just say, Lord, I say yes. You may be thinking, what's the question? It doesn't matter. Whatever he says, whatever God says, say yes in advance. That's the safest way to live your life, by the way. Lord, we say yes. We don't know what you're asking. We haven't had a chance to pray or think about it. We want you to know before we do, our answer to you is yes. How could it be otherwise? You said yes. You went to the cross. You purchased us for yourself. And we say yes back to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Like many of you that grew up hearing the story of Dunkirk, it, it was history for us, right? And then you just recently maybe saw the movie. And the frustrating thing for me, maybe some of you are like me, is couldn't be part of it. It wasn't my generation. I wasn't British. I wasn't, wasn't alive in 1940. It wasn't an opportunity for me. All I can do is hear the stories. You see, the they were the British people with boats in 1940. And what Michael is talking about, what I believe God has called us to do here in this city, he's going to do through a they, and it's his people, the followers of Jesus upon the earth. It's the church, and we're a family. And just as much as I, I can't go back in time and I can't be a part of that history, I can't make that happen. For those who have yet to give their lives to Jesus to be a part of that, they're not, they're not going to make history. So you know who I'm talking to today. If you're one of those people, you have yet to say, you know what, I'm going to live my life for something bigger. I want to be a part of the thing. I want to be a part of the people of God on the earth that are changing a city, making it hard to go to hell from Columbia. I want to be one of those people. Then you have to start with you. It starts with you saying, Jesus is my king.
And I am going to be a part of they, the people of God doing something great. If you've never made Jesus your king, I want to help you do that here this morning. I'm not going to embarrass you, ask you to stand up front or come down front or do anything like that. Just right where you're seated, I'm going to help you begin a conversation with him. Would you all join me? Right where you're seated, pray something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now, I want to live for you. I want you to be my king. I thank you for your love, your mercy, your forgiveness. And my simple prayer today is that you would give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at Grace Life Church. Music.